0: Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's return to Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. Luke, chapter 6. It, of course, was no doubt repeated among the many disciples of Jesus, but he did say, in striking and very specific terms, what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world and yet loses his own soul? Now, that is a very, very concise way of describing a tragedy, the greatest tragedy of all. That someone would forfeit eternity for what is here in this life, this meager, short life, which, by the way, James calls a vapor. (laughs) What a tragedy! And you could go one step further. It's it's tragic enough that someone would choose the cheap trinkets of the market square rather than drinking the fountain of palace life. But it's tragic even beyond that, that someone would love it. If someone is drinking from the cheaper glories of the earth, it is far more tragic when they are made to love it. Jesus had said it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. In fact, far easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle rather than a rich man to come to heaven. Why is that? Because wealth or um, earthly comforts, we shall say, or even power or intellect or earthly achievements or the praise of men, these things become for us the feeding of our cravings. And when we learn to love them, we are further from the gospel than we've ever been. That's the reality. That is the tragedy. And so the grace of God has to take people down before they can be taken up. The grace of God has to bring people low. The grace of God, uh, if they're going to be saved at all, if they're going to entertain the gospel at all, if they're going to look at things rightly at all, he has to humble them. He has to take things away from them comforts of this life of course we've been in luke's gospel and the last time we were in this text jesus was standing on a level place and on this side of the hill and he'd begun to teach this massive crowd that had gathered to hear him the scene by the way was absolutely wild a couple of weeks ago we introduced this section for you and it is an it, it is a chaotic scene Verse 18 says that the crowd came to be healed of their diseases. And it says those who were troubled with unclean spirits were also being cured. And according to verse 19, everyone in the crowd, massive crowd, thousands, or so the narrative seem to indicate. Massive crowds, and it says in verse 19, they were, they were in a frenzy trying to touch him. Because in the grace of God, the common grace of God, the text says, power was coming from him, and look at this, healing them all. This wasn't like the false healers of the day. This wasn't the chicanery of the so-called healers who, who specialized in stage antics and dubious healings. The phonies who pretend to have power, not at all. On this day, every instant someone truly diseased would touch Jesus, the power coming from him would heal them. The scene was absolutely chilling. Imagine for a moment, if you can, just the sheer volume of diverse afflictions and the massive number of people showing up with diseases to get healed disfigured and twisted limbs severely crippling birth defects debilitating injuries all manner of infectious diseases and blindness and deafness and leprosy and all manner of skin diseases and tortured limbs were immediately straightened and restored to full health, instantly. New muscle tissue and skin simply appeared as, as if the disease had never been. Bones instantly became brand new. Infections were suddenly gone. Afflicted and dying children were immediately healed and given back to their ecstatic mothers. The formerly blind were running around seeing. The formerly deaf were running around hearing. And even those who had immersed themselves in the occult and were being tormented by demons, they were touching Jesus and they were being instantly released from their evil captors and fully restored to their sanity and their health. All these healings were immediate. They were total. And they were publicly blatant. Absolutely before everyone's eyes. To stare that kind of power in the face, beloved, would have been unnerving, disturbing, frightening. That's why Luke highlights it so much. He's a doctor. spent all his career trying to heal people with earth's resources and medicine, limited human capability. And you see how well physicians did in that day there were thousands full of disease incurable and so while all this was going on and people were rushing Jesus and the comfort was coming and people were running away healed and families lives were altered forever in the middle of that scene Jesus fixes his gaze on his disciples the text says and he began to preach so in the middle of the chaos with attention riveted on him Jesus preaches a sermon that's going to separate the true, genuine followers of Christ from those that are interested in something here. Those that are trying to gain a temporal benefit. And Jesus does it in this context because he knows that people are coming to him and they are desperate. They came to be healed. They came for the immediate earthly relief and comfort from life's afflictions. But listen, their view of Jesus had to be put to the test. Because Jesus knows, beloved, that if the human heart fixates on gaining temporal happiness, they will be further from the gospel than they've ever been. And if they are left without the grace of being brought low, they will learn too quickly to love temporal benefits. And listen, if you learn to love the temporal benefits here, and to lose such benefits is your worst case scenario, you are further from the gospel than ever. These desperate people have come seeking from Jesus something they think he has to offer. They are hoping their ship has come in. You heard of living the American dream. These people are wanting to live the Galilean dream. They're bringing family members. And if Jesus has this kind of power, he can offer me reputation. Reputation. He can can offer me security and fortune and leisure and entertainment and pleasures and instant access to anything I might have imagined. I'll tell you what, it's such a parallel, isn't it? God has given our culture such immeasurable kindness. The gospel came to our borders centuries ago. The gospel God did that. God did that for your immigrant parents. And as the generations and colonies began to spread out, the gospel spread in the grace of Christ. And those who had settled this area, many of them were saved. And preachers started in the Northeast, in the churches, and began to preach faithfully the gospel. It wasn't because our government was committed to the Bible. The, most of the leaders of the country, if you just do a little bit of historical digging, most of them cut out a lot of the text of Scripture, including the gospel. Most of them were, were uh, more interested in rationalism, and they thought the Bible was a good way to order society. Oh, they're right. They're right about that. What really brought the grace of God to our culture were the preachers from Europe. Famous, faithful, Puritan preachers. Famous for what? For standing in the truth of God's word and preaching a gospel that was uncompromised. That's how the gospel came to you and to me. That's how you sit here today, in the grace of God. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is the same as these people had. We raise children. and Those children grow up and... They enjoy the immeasurable comforts of God's grace. And the human heart loves it so. And then when churches stop telling people to be careful, when churches stop warning people, when churches stop preaching the straightforward gospel of repentance, when churches leave out the gospel of our ensuing and imminent judgment if we don't repent when we begin to preach a gospel of prosperity and a gospel of gaining earthly wealth and a gospel of your most best and blessed life now, when we start preaching that, then the generations coming up can't get the clarity they need, you see. God wants you rich and without any illness. You heard that before in our culture? You deserve a pain-free culture. That's what we live for. You should demand your rights. The pursuit of happiness here and now, it's an inalienable right. A freedom guaranteed and protected by our laws. So demand what's rightfully yours. Listen, if we were standing there on that hillside, Jesus would be saying the same thing to you and I that he was saying to them. You would have heard the same message. You have a problem if you're attaching yourself to the comforts of this life. He would draw a sharp line so that you would know if you were a genuine disciple or not. And so in this sermon, in the middle of this context, Jesus launches into three principles. And I had to slow down on this first one because we just can't get beyond the core of it. And it is the true disciple's moral conviction. The true disciples' moral conviction. That's where Jesus begins. Notice verse 20. He turned his gaze to his disciples. So he's talking to the ones he'd just chosen on the mountain. And then that broadens out into the stragglers who were around him from which he chose the twelve. And now the whole mountainside is hearing it. So he's staring at those closest to him whom he's chosen for ministry. The others who went up on the mountain who didn't get chosen were also collected there and the whole entire mass is there to hear this sound of Jesus' sermon go up the mountainside into their hearing. Verse 20, Blessed are you who are impoverished for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of God here. Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Most likely a nuance just related to Jew and Gentile differences. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. The implication is you shall be satisfied there with God in the kingdom. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Implication, then. Verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Verse 24, contrast. Woe to you who are full of the wealth of this world. You are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now. You shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets In the same way. He's not saying having those things is the issue. It's loving them. Banking on them. Finding your comfort in them. Living for them. Craving them. Lusting for them. Giving up eternity to gain this life. That's the point. The temporal benefits of physical healing. A free meal. Economic security. The sense of practical security that came from just being around Jesus' extraordinary power. These are the things Jesus is wanting to hit them with. That was their idea of fulfillment. That's what this life ought to be offering. We prize earthly comfort and reputation. We stubbornly pursue cultural acceptance at any cost. And our hearts prize uh, those things uh, ultimately, as if they will ultimately satisfy. We pine away after anything that brings us a small measure of temporary fulfillment. And we'll even agree that we might pay a dear price later, but that's all right. I get what I have now. We like to pad our lives with the world's goods. Temporal satisfaction is what the human heart is after most. And as for suffering of any kind, mankind will run around every day trying to avoid it. And so right when this mob is rushing to grab all they can from Jesus, he, he just lays it on the line with them and says, none of these things amount to a single moment of true fulfillment. Listen, if you don't deal with your moral problem in here. You could have all that. You can gain the whole world. But if you don't deal with your soul, if you don't deal with your moral problem, it amounts to nothing. There were people there even willing to sit and listen to Jesus' teachings, maybe on a number of occasions. Just like some today will sit and listen to someone teach from the Bible and pretend to belong. But what that crowd was really after was his power Because they wanted to relieve their economic struggles. Please, Jesus, feed us meals. Please remove our poverty. Please give us power to stop our physical suffering. Make our earthly cares go away. Remove the tormentors in our life, politically and even spiritually and supernaturally, the demonic tormentors. Jesus tells them what a genuine disciple ought to look for, what the moral perspective and conviction of a genuine disciple is. Oh, blessed Happy are you who are impoverished. Happy are you who are hungering now. You don't have it all now. Listen, the less you have now, the the better off you are toward the gospel because you're going to trust uh, less. You're going to be tempted less. If you've been privileged to have a lot here, you must be guarded. Careful. God gives you tremendous common grace here to enjoy the things that are ours in his common grace. You must use it for his glory and be careful. Be guarded. But favored and happy is the one who sees themselves rightly, who deals with the moral issue of life. Matthew will say it this way, blessed are the meek or the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see themselves rightly on a moral level. If you're impoverished i mean physical poverty isn't luke's issue here but he's using it as an analogy for the ultimately impoverished someone who doesn't see earthly goods as anything at all these are nothing i can have them or i don't i can enjoy them or they're gone they're here today gone tomorrow that's okay why because my soul is the issue morality is the issue where do i stand with god what a grace from the Lord for Jesus to preach this to these people. You think, oh, what a grace that he was healing all those people. That's true. It is such lavish compassion from God. But what's even more compassionate is the sermon. Because the sermon opens the ears. The sermon gives clarity. Wow, what a great Object lesson for them. Here they are rushing to all these earthly comforts, and he drops the bomb on them. Listen, if you want to be a true disciple, you've got to have the right moral perspective, and the right moral perspective is that real happiness, real fulfillment, real satisfaction does not come from any of these things. I healed your maimed hand. Nothing if your soul isn't dealt with. Gave you your life back. Gave you your child back. Nothing. If you're ending up taking your child by the hand and dragging him to hell with you, what difference does it make if you lose eternity? <laughs> Jesus uses the affliction of earthly poverty as an analogy for spiritual poverty. You're running around trying to secure your best life in the here and now. That's why the The terminology just sort of carries it on. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who weep now. Uh, You have affliction in your life? You have difficulty in your life? Look to God as your portion. These are gifts to you. When you prize fulfillment in this life, you end up losing in the matter of your conscience and your soul. But when you long for spiritual happiness and the forgiveness of your sins... You have a morally clean conscience and you're forgiven. Verse 20 says, yours then is the kingdom of heaven. You get eternal fulfillment. You get the things of eternity. The divine rewards of a sinless heaven. The divine rewards of perfection and righteousness. An earth in the future and a heaven in the future where righteousness dwells forever. You get unimaginable joys which the scriptures say, eye has not seen and ear has not heard. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2. This is richness. Blessed are you who hunger now. You shall be satisfied. It's that term that means you will have the fulfillment and satisfaction that your heart craves. You don't have economic security on earth now? Don't think that having it will satisfy. It won't. You don't have the most joyful circumstances on earth right now? Don't think that that having no sorrows here will satisfy. It won't. As I said, it's not the money that's the issue. It's not the joy and laughter that's the issue. We had that even yesterday at a wedding. Joy and laughter, it's wonderful. But we cannot live under the illusion that that'll get us anything in eternity. In fact, if you trust in what you have here, notice you've received all the comfort you're going to have. Verse 24, Woe to you who have those world's goods, for you are receiving your comfort in full. God gives you nothing in eternity. Verse 25, Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry in eternity. Hungry for what? You're going you're to be weeping and grieving and hungry for the presence of God and yet you'll be out of his presence. Forever. You say, well, pastor, I just don't believe that. All right. It does not matter whether a human accepts it or rejects it many people rejected Christ on that hillside he is their judge in eternity it's not having food that's a problem it's trusting in it it's not having laughter it's a problem it's trusting in it it's not enjoying life that's the problem it's craving those things they're just paltry charms they're nothing Genuine disciples of Jesus, according to Jesus himself, are not running around under the illusion that anything in this earthly life can be stacked up against the fulfillment of the life to come. We know the truth as believers. We know what the wisest king in all of human history knew because God had dispensed this wisdom upon him in lavish grace. Proverbs sixteen nineteen Solomon said, It's better to be of a humble spirit and spending time with the needy and afflicted than to divide the riches with the proud. Absolutely. It's better to have a humble heart changed by Christ and have nothing in this life than it is to have all of the wealth of the world with the arrogant because their time is coming. The end is near. Or Proverbs nineteen twenty two: It's better to be a poor man than a liar. Of course better to have integrity in the inner man it's better to have a pure heart who shall dwell in my holy hill God said it's a man who walks with the integrity of his heart it's better to be a person whom Christ has changed it's better to be a person whom Christ has made pure because you've repented and submitted your life to God's word it's better to be an honest truthful person at the core of your life and have nothing of the world's goods Everybody looks at you and says, you have nothing. See what your Christianity gets you? Nothing. And we say, here and now? Yes, that's right. That's right. Solomon would go on to say in Ecclesiastes, when he was learning some very hard lessons about this, Ecclesiastes 7, five. It's better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. Everybody in this life is partying and living it up. Oh, you need to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. How many times have funerals come and gone, and we speak at them, and a message from the grace of God goes out to people, and they walk out, and they go back and party like fools, paying little attention to the message? Solomon will say in that seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, verse 2, listen to this Son, he says it to his son it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. End quote. That's right. The wise ones living in this life compares the the goods of this world and then looks at the end of every man, which is what? Horizontal. Dust. That's the end of every man in this life. Everybody's temporal life goes to that same place and in so doing they are a reminder (laughs) that you can have all this stuff remember that? remember Mrs. Rockefeller? you never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul? you remember that? you can have all this stuff this comfort you can search it out and search it out and search it out and guess what? everybody who battles disease eventually dies even if they conquer that disease. What is flowing through our veins is corruption and therefore death, Romans five twelve. Death entered through sin. So we're all corrupt. It doesn't matter. This is the end of every man. And the living, the wise living, take notice of it, take it to heart, take it in, take its lessons in. This is what Jesus is trying to graciously do to the people on the, on the hillside. Look, you're coming to me, you're rushing to me, and God is being gracious and power is flowing out of me. But you've got a problem because you're going to go away from this little event with your little treasure of your healing, and you're going to try to follow me all the way to the political throne, and you're going to try to be my follower because you've got a little earthly comfort and relief you got a little free food. And so in the most kind and tender moment on that day, Jesus says, real happiness is not in those things. And notice, Jesus goes for the jugular here. He doesn't stop there. He deals with the issue of of man's pride and love of being personally exalted in the eyes of the world. And this is where we we kind of needed to unpack it a little bit for you from last week. Notice verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Verse 23. Be glad in that day, the day that it happens, and leap... Literally, for joy. Why? Look at this. Your reward is great in heaven. Hey, in the same way, their fathers, their ancestors, used to treat the truth-tellers from God, the prophets, the messengers of God. Verse 26, here's the opposite. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their father used to treat the false messengers in the same way. So first, from the negative side, woe to you when you are looking for reputation and you're able to achieve it. Man, you're the, you're the cat's meow blogger one of a kind. You get more hits than anybody. You are something. Best seller. Popular in every field. Maybe you, your education has achieved you some grand intellectual status so that when the world wants to hear philosophy of the universe, they put a microphone up to you. Or maybe you have all your kids and grandkids just blowing and going with the greatest achievements and heritage. They're all successful, making you proud. Everybody speaks well of you because you've earned it. You've wanted that good reputation. You've gone after that good reputation. And, and you've made sure that no one, doesn't matter what their religion doesn't matter what society, doesn't matter what ethnic background, doesn't matter what cultural difference. You've made sure that you can just blend in. Why? Because you want reputation. You want to be thought well of in the eyes of people. That's your priority. And so what does Jesus do? He weighs it on the divine scale. Your desire is for all men to speak well of you. You want to achieve... You want to achieve status in this life and be praised by all men all the days of your earthly life? That's what you think is going to bring fulfillment and true happiness? That's your blessed life now? Well, then here's what you're going to have to do. Here's what you're going to have to do to achieve that kind of wonderful, everyone speaking well of you across all lines. Here's what you're going to have to do. First of all, you're going to have to always embrace the ideologies of the culture. You've got to embrace them all. No matter where they shift and what direction they head. No matter, no matter what message they morally present. You have to embrace the ideologies of the culture as they shift. That way, you'll always be viewed as self-made, intelligent, and morally sophisticated. You're with the times. You are with it. You're not out of touch. You're not bizarre. You're not some freak. You're with it. We like you. Secondly, you're going to have to always answer ethical questions, ethical dilemmas. What should we do about this? What about this? What about these beliefs? What about this? What about this? How about homosexuality? How about moral issues over here? How about this and that? You're going to always have to answer those ethical questions by promoting tolerance of the most broad perspectives and you're going to have to show intolerance of narrow views. That's what you're going to have to do. You want to be well-liked. You're going to have to always embrace the ideologies of the culture no matter where they go, and you're going to have to always answer ethical questions by promoting the tolerance for the most broad views and intolerance of anything that seems more narrow and definitive. Why are you doing that? Because if you do that, you'll never be lumped in with those who are labeled bigots or killjoys. You never have to worry about that. And there's a third thing you're going to have to do if you want all men to speak well of you. You're going to have to add, if, you, if you're inclined towards spirituality, you're going to have to add spiritual overtones that are vague. Every, every time you mention human relationships, you're going to have to add spiritual overtones that are vague, and you're, you're always going to speak of the invincible human spirit Maybe prayer to a higher power. Believe in yourself. Just to include the ideology we've handed to children through entertainment and movies through the last several decades, beloved. Believe in yourself. The hero lies within. Add a little bit of that and then make sure that the power of human love Human love is always at the top of your priority list. If you do that, you'll be exalted as noble. And even your religious beliefs will be acceptable. In fact, they'll be seen as beneficial to society. So always embrace the ideologies of the culture no matter where they shift. You'll be self-made, intelligent, and morally sophisticated. Always answer ethical questions by the broadest tolerance and, and show intolerance for anything that's narrow. That way you'll never be called a bigot and add spiritual overtones that are vague. Speaking of the invincible human spirit, exalting the power of human love. That's one side of the scale. Society will view you as wonderful you won't be called any names and your innocuous expressions of spirituality will be noble seems like a very happy and desirable life by human measure and Jesus puts that fulfillment plan on the divine scale and he weighs in on it like this woe to you literally cursed are you when all men speak well of you for in the same way their fathers used to treat listen listen The false prophets. Wow. The false prophets in Israel claimed to speak spiritual things, but they delivered only lies. But they spoke well of some of the people who loved it, loved the world. They had people eating out of their hands, all the while leading them in false worship, into paganism, and ultimately into the destruction of entire generations. Man, we have false prophets all over today, don't we? They promise That if you get rid of all your negative thoughts, you'll become psychologically healthy and free from trouble. We got churches, so-called churches with so-called pastors of 50,000 people on a given weekend. And they're saying, you get rid of all your negative thoughts, you're going to be psychologically healthy. You can have it all right now. That promise that if you send them all of your hard-earned money, you'll become wealthy and physical afflictions will be healed. And they promise that God is obligated to give you everything you want to enjoy in this earthly life. Same old lies as the, prophets, the false prophets of old. Same old parlor tricks. They all make some claim to spirituality, but they deliver lies. And they lead people into narcissism, paganism, self-destruction. Jesus weighs the truly blessed life on the divine scale. Verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you. What? What? I don't want people to hate me. Well, of course you don't. You, you, at least nothing for anything sinful in us. Right? You're not, it's not a good thing when you suffer for doing what is wrong, the New Testament says. Of course we don't want people to hate us justly because we've been wicked and sinful against them. But that's not the point here. Notice when men hate you, when they ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. There it is. There it is right there. Oh, you love Christ? You love Jesus? Tell me about your Jesus. Does he make any demands on moral society? Oh, he says homosexuality is a sin. He says that Fornication and immorality is a sin. He says abortion is murder. Uh, it's not a Jesus we want around here. Get him out of here. You get out of here. No, you can't expand your ministry. No, you can't have any, any comfort in society. No, we won't allow you where you want to go. No, we're going to put fences around you and eventually we're going to erase you. For the sake of the Son of Man, Matthew's account of the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. There it is. What does Jesus say? Be glad in that day. That must have rocked their world. I mean, what did he just say? Blessed are those who hate us? Blessed are you when you're hated by people? Blessed is your life when people come against you. Is that what he's saying? Be glad, leap for joy, for listen up. Your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Boy, isn't that true? 2 Chronicles 36 just documents, God just documents there the history of Israel's killing of her own prophets Luke 11, later on in this gospel, 47 to 51, same thing. Jesus says, you have killed your prophets over and over again. It's repeated by Luke in Acts uh, Acts 7, verse 52. This is a theme for Luke as he writes this gospel. Look, Jesus constantly said that you were going to be ostracized, and this goes all the way back. Your reward is great in heaven. You say how am I going to get rewarded in heaven? God keeps records. You can read it Matthew 10. Matthew 10:24 10, to 33, cost of discipleship. Jesus says in that gospel, in that section, whatever is done in secret will be exposed, whatever is hidden and done in back alleys will be brought to light. He keeps records. He's a perfect record keeper. Any insult Any isolation, anything anyone does to set you aside, move you, marginalize you, get rid of you. God just marks it down as an evil done against his name and against his son for the sake of Christ. And it's just like the record that he's kept those who killed the prophets. But listen, Jesus basically says to these people in the crowd, if you want all men to speak well of you, you will be in line with the false prophets. You'll be in their line. You'll be of their lineage. But if you truly follow Christ for the sake of the Son of Man and the people in society make your life miserable because of it, you should count those moments not as your worst case scenario, but as joyful It's confirmation that your life is a joy to Christ. You're experiencing everything every other disciple experienced and your reward in eternity, it is certain, it is settled, and here's the key, your moral convictions are confirmed as being just like God's. You have the right moral conviction. So the fulfilled life is not superficial peace with the world that's not the fulfilled life we don't go poking people in the eye that would be sinful but when the truth pokes them in the eye we we stand there and we say it poked me in the eye too but you can have forgiveness if you will repent judgment is coming people thought Jesus was offering an earthly temporal life free from affliction and Free from unfulfilled cravings? With Jesus, you can have everything. Not in this life. You don't want anything this life has to offer. What did the psalmist say in Psalm 16? I read it earlier. You are my portion. You're my portion, Lord. The Lord is my portion. He's given us everything we need. He lives inside of us. He renews our mind. He illuminates our mind and heart to the truth. He shows us its implications in our life. He brings us along, comforts us, lifts us up, gives us all the clarity we need. What Jesus offered that day on the hillside is what the gospel offers everyone now just before judgment. It offers them a countercultural life of faith. Countercultural. Look, as, as our evangelical landscape goes downward and as our country uh, begins to hate the true gospel, I am not interested in compromising to make peace with those in this society. This is sometimes, beloved, and let me just nuance this for a moment, this is sometimes why I get nervous when somebody wants to go feed the hungry. I get nervous about that, not because I don't want to feed the hungry. That is Christian compassion that that happens when you get saved. You just love people. You want to see people not hurting anymore. But anyone that starts to get involved in social efforts and won't give people the truth of the gospel and deal with their soul, that's where I get nervous. That's where the church should get nervous. We have entire groups today saying that feeding somebody food is the same gospel ministry as telling them to repent. No, it isn't. If that were true, Jesus would have left it at a meal. Jesus would have healed the people and not preached that day. He is trying to help them. He's being compassionate by telling them, look, I healed you, but you should not love that. Look, I fed you, but you should not crave that. You should crave me. Not the power that flows out of me, but the power to save your soul. Not the power to straighten out your broken limb, but the power to give you a new moral life and a clean conscience and righteousness and holiness. That's what you ought to crave. He was being merciful that day. How kind. You know what that does? If you really embrace the moral convictions that Jesus preaches here, then you're a true disciple of Christ. And that leads, then, to another shocking principle that Jesus preached that day. In our outline, it'll be our second. Our time is done, so we'll preach it next time, but I'll just remind you of it. The first principle was the true disciple's moral conviction. The second principle which Jesus goes on to preach about is the true disciples' merciful deeds or conduct. If you're a true disciple of Christ and you have the moral conviction that Jesus has just preached and you deal with the soul, the human soul, then you are not going to get involved in the vengeful, retaliating, self-preserving, self-exalting behavior of the world. You're going to be mercy compassion forgiveness you're going to be really a wonderful respite for those whom God is softening because you're going to offer them what they really need you're going to be a cool drink in their desert and when they punch you in the face you're going to offer them forgiveness and when they step on you and ostracize you you're going to offer love and kindness and mercy Do you know why the gospel isn't more powerful in the churches in our culture? We don't live like that, the way we are. Let's just confess it right now. The church is petty in America. It is vengeful, money-grubbing, selfish, dishonest, corrupt, And I'm not talking about in the pew. I'm talking about pulpits and leadership teams living for themselves, living for earthly prosperity. And if someone steps on their toes, man, they let them have it. In the name of Jesus. It's wicked. It's absolutely wicked. And Jesus isn't finished. He's saying... You've got to get your moral convictions online with God's and you have to, if you want to know you're a true disciple, your behavior is going to be completely opposite of the vengeance and evil that the world demonstrates. Beloved, in this next season of evangelicalism for Grace Emmanuel Bible Church, for this body, as persecution and ostracization comes and insults come, the greatest gospel influence we're going to have is not that people would come through those doors and listen to us in here. They're not coming here anymore. They're going to go to the Joel Osteens of the world and get their, get their meal. They're not going to come in these doors. So we've got to go out of these doors and show them a love of Christ so radical, so forgiving, so merciful. Show marriages so rich in Christian love. Show body life so rich in service and sacrifice that they are just looking at it and stunned and want to know, what is it with you people? That's going to be our gospel ministry in the next era of evangelicalism in this culture. Are you ready? Are you ready? You've got to have this moral conviction. And if you have this moral conviction, you'll have these merciful deeds. Jesus Christ is our, our supreme example, is he not? That's where we're headed next time. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for this wonderful preaching event that was recorded for us in scripture the perfect preacher the perfect timing the perfect clarity perfect love perfect mercy and yet perfect rebuke Lord we as a church are just bound up in limitation and selfishness we sometimes are no different than the world in our verbal expressions of what we love and what we say we're all about. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be fixated not on the things of this life as if we could gain any ultimate satisfaction here, but fix our hearts upon the hope to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ and because of our fixation on that glory to come, may it purify our lives here. And Lord, don't let anyone get away from this service today still loving the things of this world. How tragic a blindness to love what only will be empty, empty, nothing in their mouth, when they come to face you. May they taste the gospel today and live. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.